In late March 2020, concerns around the spread of COVID-19 escalated and it became clear that Australia was facing a period of lockdown. Kate Thorley, the Chief Executive Officer of Wilson Asset Management, made the decision to cancel the firm's national roadshow, which was scheduled to take place in May. To ensure the more than 80,000 shareholders in WAM's listed investment companies were kept up to date, the concept of WAM Vault was conceived. WAM Vault is a series of in-depth interviews featuring Kate Thorley, Jeff Wilson, and the three lead portfolio managers, Matthew Haupt, Katrina Burns, and Oscar Oberg. This podcast features highlights from each of those interviews, and investors should visit wilsonassetmanagement.com.au forward slash vault, V-A-U-L-T, where they can watch, read, or listen to the extended conversations. This podcast starts with Kate Thorley, who discusses how Wilson Asset Management has responded to the coronavirus crisis and shares the positive surprises that have emerged under lockdown. The biggest upside? Oh, definitely, yeah, definitely spending time with the kids and with Ian as a family unit. That's definitely the upside and probably the, <laughs> probably equally just, just as much a challenge. To have a Zoom call where you can see everyone's faces on screen, uh, you're seeing people in their home environment, one of my colleagues said to me, Kate, I don't think I've spoken to you in the last two weeks without one of your children coming up to you saying that they're hungry. Coming out of this, whilst it's too soon to say what normal looks like, I think technology will play, play a really big part in our lives going forward. And we're going to really miss, you know, not being able to see our investors. In some ways, we're sort of appreciating the simple things in life again and uh, appreciating how important our families are to us. And then the sense of community was a really big one. And stories of, say on Anzac Day uh, morning, a shareholder said that he went out at 6am and, and everyone in his street was you know, out on the street and, and what a lovely sense of community that, that gave him. Normally people probably wouldn't be as friendly as in, and engaging, but people are actually stopping and, and having a chat and, and checking in with people. I guess you hear all these lovely stories of neighbours uh, checking in on, you know, on their neighbours and making sure that, they're, um, you know, that they've got access to food and, and supplies, etc. So I think that's been really lovely. Around $3 billion in funds under management. It's obviously a really big responsibility. Definitely. In terms of getting the business operating at a state where you were comfortable with that, um, you know, the custody that you have over those people's money, what were the most important things for you to get done and get right to get the team operating in a way that made you feel comfortable? Yeah, def- um, look, I think the first thing, you know, one of the first things we did before we even moved, uh, moved everyone and, you know, closed the office was to uh, cancel the investor presentations. I think we did that in, you know, at the beginning of March when it became apparent that, uh, you know, the safety of, of our investors, um, you know, needed to be a priority as well. And by cancelling it early meant that we can then adapt to, well, how are we going to best engage with, with our 80,000 shareholders? Uh, so not only were we facing this health crisis, we also had um, an economic crisis and markets that were incredibly volatile and, um, you know, there's no doubt when you're responsible for um, shareholders, you know, retirement savings, um, that, the, you know, one of the most important things is not only how you're managing that money but also how you're communicating with your investors. Have you thought about what um, going back to work 
looks I, like? I have. I have, definitely. Um, and, and we have as a team, obviously, um, we're talking about it all the time. I think it's, I think it's too soon, to be honest. I, I really think there's, there's no need to rush back. I think we need to think about as a company, um, you know, the impact of, you know, rushing back into the city and having people back on public transport. If, if we're able to continue working uh, in this current state um, for a bit longer and just let society ease back into things, um, then I think that's, you know, that's something that we can do. We've talked a bit about the positives. What are some of the things that the team say don't work? What can't be replaced? I mean, with technology, which has been brilliant, and I think, uh, you know, as I've, as I've talked about there, there still have been some challenges from a tech perspective. You'll be sort of midway through a board meeting and, you know, something freezes or you miss, you know, look, that's, that's just technology. That's, you know, the internet. And, but I think we've been very fortunate in this country, uh, you know, to have, to have decent, uh, decent uh, internet. Whilst we're all set up from a tech perspective with laptops, et cetera, and our mobile phones and access to emails, I think there's no doubt we underestimated the impact for those that have got um, children having to, you know, once the school's closed, having to try and manage homeschooling on top of managing uh, your work commitments, I think has been a, a really big challenge for a lot of families. And I think just dealing with, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of families that are doing it really tough um, from a financial perspective, you know, with partners you know, being stood down or, or losing their jobs or they're, or they're concerned about losing their jobs. You know, there's a huge amount of anxiety and, and stress in the community, which I think we underestimate. So um, I think that the challenges are definitely from an economic perspective in terms of our country and, um, you know, I guess globally as they've, you know, shut down economies and the impact that has on, on, uh, on families and, um, and on individuals, you sort of can't can't underestimate the the impact of that on uh, on people's well-being on their mental mental health and and all those sorts of things you've got to accept that things have changed and the quicker you accept that and the quicker you can recalibrate what the new world will look like the better you'll do as an investor personally it's got me significantly up the technology curve working out how to work from home now i've got you know, Skype business, I've got Zoom, I've got house party. One of the things you always have to do is work against your emotions. And that's the hard part. Matt, Katrina and Oscar and the whole investment team have done an exceptional job. One thing I'm pleased about is how quickly they're able to adjust. You know, adjust to the new economic environment and adjust the portfolios. Wilson Asset Management put the question yes. to shareholders. What's your view? Where, where are we on, on the curve? How are people feeling? It has been a roller coaster ride, and, and we've been everywhere. I think in the last little period, yeah. At the moment, yeah, I think it probably is hope, um, yeah, which doesn't fill me with confidence. Yeah, in terms of how do I like to invest? I sort of like to plan for the worst and hope for the best. I mean, the tough thing is hope is not a strategy, um, but yeah, you know, that's that's I think where we are. The first time I, I saw you speak on a on a panel session, you you, you brought out the buy when there's blood. That was one of my, my 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 early memories of how you like to invest. You had to be quick to see the, the blood this time around. You think maybe um, there hasn't been enough pain felt just yet? That's right. And and, and to me, it's one of the great quotes. Uh, Baron Rothschilds uh, you know, is it is it something along the lines of you know, 
buy when there's blood running in the streets, um, even if it's your own. Yeah. Uh, and, and when the market falls, you know, and it falls so significantly, then some of the blood is your own. Yeah, it was very extreme. The fall, yeah, you thirty-five know, odd percent in in a in the in the quickest period of time ever, yeah, you know, which wasn't overly surprising because we've just had the longest bull market ever. So therefore, yeah, you know, it wouldn't surprise you if you had if the bear market is significantly different than what we've seen previously, in terms of the quickest bear market ever, uh, and. Um, and that, that's the surprising part. To me, it would have been, you'd probably expect the longest bull market ever to be followed with a, a longish bear market. But you, know, you really, when there's liquidity pumped into the system, you know, as we've seen you know, globally um, and what the Fed has done, then it's, it's, it's really hard to fight you know, that liquidity. On the recent call, one of your shareholders asked what I thought was a great question, which was if you'd been buying shares in, in, in the LICs, and your response was, um, amongst other things, but one of the, the reasons you gave was that you felt like it was probably a bit early still. Yeah. Now, that was a couple of weeks ago now. Be keen to hear how, um, you know, more broadly your views have evolved on, on whether it's a good time to be stepping into the market and, and how you and the team are thinking about that. Yeah. The, I mean, one of the you know, latter part of February, when it was clear that the virus was going global, I think it was the Monday, the 24th of February, that, that, that as a group, um, you know, it was quite, it was clear that it was a risk, risk off and, and the world was going to change. And really everyone had to work out, you know, well, we did as, as an investment team, had to work out you know, how we should position our portfolios for that change. And yeah, you know, I've got to take my hat off to you know, Matt, Katrina, and Oscar, and, and all the investment team. Yeah, you know, they did a fantastic job, uh, and, and you know, we were communicating consistently um, around that period, uh, and and continue and, and just trying to add all little bits of information to to work out what the new world will look like. Um, and and obviously, in those early you know, days, it wasn't as clear. And as time's gone gone on, it's become significantly more clear, yeah, you know, in terms of the economic impact. And, and over that, you know, the probably the you know, the portfolios over that latter part of February and early March were changed significantly. Uh, you know, to reposition those portfolios. You know, we're trying to buy undervalued growth companies and buy them when we're gonna see a catalyst gonna change the valuation. Well, obviously the growth outlooks were all changing. Uh, and it was really the ability to sort of forecast you know, or, or, to, or to estimate what the new growth outlooks would be. Uh, and, and then, you know, so that's, that's sort of you're setting up your, 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 your portfolios. In terms of the market, you know, the, you know, the market's bounced back because of the phenomenal liquidity that's been pumped into the system. Now, whether it's, um, you know, the monetary authorities or fiscal uh, stimulus, and, and that's what's brought it back up so quickly. In terms of the underlying economies, you know, then everyone's, it's the big debate, you know, you know which, which letter of the alphabet is this? Is it, is it, a, is it a, a V-shape? Is it going to be a V-shape recovery, a U-shape, a W, an L? I think the market's sort of guessing on a, on a, a U-shape recovery. You know, to me, that's, that's, that's really the question. I'm not 100% sure it will be a U-shape recovery. You know, I think this is going to take a lot longer. Uh, and, and we've seen the liquidity being pumped into the system has, has sort of bought valuations, you know, brought the whole market back up again. 
you know, so I would, I, I'm still, you know, very conservative in terms of my positioning. And, and what I've learned over time, you know, whether it's, you know, the 87 crash or, um, you know, or the GFC is, you know, you're better off erring on the side of caution. Um, you know, so in terms of, I might have been slightly bearish when, you know, when, when we first met, um, you know, I, I still, um, we would like to plan for the worst and hope for the best. And, and, and so we've, st- we've still got a lot of unknowns that will become clear over the next you know, two, three and six months. So in terms of, you know, would you be buying um, you know, with your ears pinned back now? Um, you know, to me, you've got to have, have enough cash for, you know, for, so you sleep well at night because the, will, you know, the market always does provide opportunities. I think on the curve of emotions, James, we're sitting around hope. We're getting a lot of um, share market performance coming back in, but I really think there is more legs to this downturn. I'm seeing value in the banking sector, which is probably contrarian. ANZ, NAB and Westpac all look relatively cheap. They're almost like GFC levels. If we go back to crisis scenario, you go long gold. So it's very much, we're keeping a very fluid situation in gold. You could be in a position where the oil market becomes incredibly tight and you actually get prices rising, that is a real clear trend and it's quite mechanical. If the economy's open up again, all usage goes up. With what's played out, where do you see value in the market? I'm seeing value in the banking sector, which is probably contrarian. At the moment, the banks are very much hated across the market. The institutional uh, funds are very much underweight. The reason why I like it is, like them as a sector, is Everyone's banking on this long drawn out recovery in their economy and a credit cycle coming through. But I think if the credit cycle isn't as bad, the banks look like really good value here. It's gonna take a a few more months to work this trade out. We're just initiating this trade, but I think there is some value in the banks. And if I look at other sectors, the oil sector would be one. I think the oil sector looks okay. And again, if you're banking on a recovery in economic conditions, the oil stocks look really good value here. Okay. We'll dig into banks in a little more detail further on. Just on the oil market, it was a recurring theme and a point of interest for investors. What do you see as the recovery path for for oil and and potentially timeline? Yeah, so oil at the moment, my best guesstimate is about 20 million barrels of demand that has fallen away. So there's a big surplus in the oil market. We've seen the OPEC cuts come in in May. That's around 10 million barrels a day. So we need that gap between that 20 and 10 to close. And that will close when the economy is open again. Aviation is around 8% of global demand for oil. Um, so that's going to take a while to come back. But transport's a big one. When people start driving again, that oil um, gap will start to close. And I think you'll get an increasing oil price over the next few months. I'm a little bit wary about the June contract of oil, the futures contract. There may be another episode like we saw in the May contract where near the end of expiry, it fell away and went negative. That's just a financial impact. That's not really, um, producers aren't getting negative prices, but that's a financial futures event. That may happen again, but post that, I think oil is really set up for a a long-term trade here. One of the real features of this market has been just how quickly things have changed. It's been really volatile. There's been new information to react to. How has that impacted the way that you've been managing money? Yeah, so the, the sell-off was incredibly 
uh, fast and vicious. And it was a real unwinding of all the leverage that had been built up over the past decade. So that all unwound in about two, three weeks. You had massive deleveraging. The Fed had to intervene, almost like a, a LTCM scenario where that failed. The Fed had to intervene and bail out um, these leveraged, uh, they call them um, risk parity funds. They had to go in and bail these guys out uh, initially. So volatility was extreme. And I guess from my perspective, um, the volatility creates opportunities. So for about three or four weeks, I was up every night, probably getting about four hours sleep, uh, just watching European markets, US markets, watching the Fed speakers, trying to work out what was going on so we could shape our portfolio um, back in Australia to try and take advantage of this. And thankfully we could get on uh, top of all of these trades early, but the volatility creates opportunities. We like volatility and we found incredible opportunities um, in the in the midst of the crash so crashes happen in stock markets it's nothing to be scared of it feels bad at the time but it creates um, great opportunities um, if you can get your um, hold your nerve and get in the market could you maybe just talk us through an example of a trade that worked out really well i'm i'd be interested to know i'm sure a lot of shareholders probably don't have an insight to you know how actively you trade and what some of these opportunities. Could you just run us through a quick example sure. of one I, that worked out? I guess, like, I'm thinking at a stock level, um, Centre Group was a really interesting one. So Centre Group, they own the Westfield uh, shopping malls. That price was at all-time lows um, at a point. We don't, we're not necessarily a believer in shopping centres long-term, but every now and then the market throws up these incredible opportunities and we bought Centre Group and now it's put on about 40 50% from its lows. Uh, another one, Star Group, the casino operator, was trading well below net tangible assets. Again, the, the stock market had discounted their future, was trading well below net tangible assets. So we purchased Star as well. And again, let's put on about a dollar from its share price from, uh, we're buying it you know, $1.60, it's now $2.60. So um, you get great opportunities in this market if you can hold your nerve. Um, the market on the upside overacts, but also on the downside overacts. So you just really got to have a long-term position and, and a view on these stocks if they'll come out of this. Talk us through your thesis on gold sure. and, and, and how you're playing it in the portfolio and why you're doing it through some of those mid-tier producers that, that, that you're holding. Yeah, gold's a really interesting topic and one that has uh, many believers and non-believers for us. It's just how can we make money and where will money flow to? And Post the sell-off, in the initial sell-off, gold was sold down. That happened during the GSC too. As we talked about the US dollar, everyone was trying to access US dollars, so gold became a funding uh, source. So post that, gold, we had to wait for the sell-off in gold. Then we purchased a lot of the mid-tier gold producers. And, and the reason why we purchased the mid-tier is they're Australian-based and they have growth opportunities. Whereas uh, the bigger company like Newcrest, which we do own as well, we don't have as big a position in that because they have operations offshore and they don't have the growth profile as the smaller mid-tier ones. So for us, the, the Saracens of the world and Northern Star, um, they have growth opportunities and we quite like those stocks. So that's the reason. Um, thematically, gold, I still think has got some upside, but I'm a little bit wary now. It's very um, much a long-term um, consensus long. So that always worries me when everyone's thinking the same thing. So again, we have to make our decision now. Will gold improve from here? Gold will improve as if interest rates stay low and volatility stays elevated. But if interest rates start going up, 
um, and economic conditions improve, despite the money out there, I still think gold has some short-term downside if that scenario eventuates. But if we go back to crisis scenario, you go long gold. So it's very much, we're keeping a very fluid situation in gold. It's around 4% of the portfolio at the moment. I'd probably be reducing that down to about three over the next few weeks um, and then see where, how we go. And if we get another flush of volatility, we can move back gold. So it's very fluid at the moment. Well, you touched on it in our introduction and I know it's gonna be a, a big question for a lot of your shareholders. Let's dig into the banking sector a, a, a little bit more. As we sit here in, in mid-May, we've seen um, a number of the majors defer paying their dividends. Um, there's been NAB reduced their dividend drastically, yet you still remain constructive on the, on the sector. Is it that point of peak bearishness that, that has got you interested? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you want peak bearishness, but you also want a fundamental case that has a probability of playing out. And I think the stock market for me, banks look relatively cheap versus the rest of the market. So for me, either the rest of the market falls toward the banks or the banks go up towards the rest of the market. For me, I think the big question now is, will the profits of the banks be socialised too much? Um, and by what I mean is, will the banks bear too much of that pain? The government are trying to make them bear a lot of the pain. So the real question is, how much pain will they bear as far as you know, interest payments and the like and de delaying and, and fees and the like? So, but my base case is, while I'm constructive, I think the economy does improve. I think jobs come back. I don't think the credit cycle will be as long and as deep as people think. And therefore, I think the banks will come back um, and there'll be a great opportunity to buy um, over the next few months. Um, the, the downside scenario, obviously, is that you get a second wave of the virus, we go into an extended lockdown again, then my view would change quite dramatically. But my view at the moment is the economy opens up again, um, the credit cycle isn't as bad, and the way with the accounting works with the banks now is they've changed the accounting. So when you get a credit event like now, all the provisioning is front-end loaded, but when the credit environment improves, the unwind is just as quick, so you get all these write-backs which under, underpin their profits too. So uh, for me, I think the banks are well capitalised. Um, I think they can, if we're in a scenario where things improve, you'll get the write-backs. And if the RBA also step off the yield curve because they're holding the yield curve down, their three-year rate at 0.25, they've actually stepped off that and allowed to go up to market rates, which may be 75 bips or 100 bips, um, the banks will start earning good money on their replicating portfolio. So the unwind, unwind trade would be quite powerful. So that's why I'm, I'm interested. We're not betting a lot on the banks at the moment, but it's still something I think could be a great opportunity in the next few months if it plays out. CBA has been forever the strong, stronger of the banks, the standout. Do you have a, a preferred way of accessing them or are there any nuances within the big four that, that are catching your eye? Yeah, there's, there's always um, differences between the big banks as far as quality goes, and but the valuation is what we look at. So CBA looks incredibly expensive on valuation, but arguably the best bank and well capitalised. Um, when I look at the banks, ANZ, NAB and Westpac all look relatively cheap. They're almost like GFC levels, so I don't think it's going to be as bad as the GFC. So I think when we look at valuation, they, they are a standout. And as far as quality goes, we really like National Australia Bank. I think that's a great uh, company, has a checkered past, but it feels like it's got the most potential to unlock value. 
And finally, we've got a, a great CEO and a great chairman at the same time. So I think NAB looks the best. It has the most embedded opportunity. So for me, NAB is a, a clear standout. What are some of the, the key attributes of the portfolio right now? So uh, the key attributes of the portfolio, was, we're sticking around iron ore. Iron ore, we think, is a great trade to happen still. We, we think China will hit a run rate of about 1.1 billion tonnes of steel production from April to December, and that will underpin the iron ore stocks in Australia. They have, Fortescue's got net cash now. Uh, the balance sheets are great of BHP and Rio. So we think that trade in this uncertain world is quite, um, quite strong. So we like that trade. I like the oil trade. Uh, we're building positions slowly at the moment, um, hoping to bring that higher over the next few months if we get some clarity around um, the economies coming back on. Uh, we like copper as a cyclical play. Copper um, is very much an industrial metal. That's a, they call it Dr. Copper, the copper price, because it gives you a good indication of uh, underlying conditions. And um, so we, we quite like copper at the moment. Um, the other key trades, uh, we really are looking at the industrials when to turn positive on those. I still think industrial share prices are too expensive, but when the economy does turn, we'll be switching a lot of the portfolio into industrials and trying to capture some of the upswing in economic activity through the um, more leveraged uh, names there too. The question is, will economies bounce back like the market is, seems to be assuming, and, and that's yet to be seen. But certainly the market is uh, trading like we're in the hope stage. So these are big numbers and big chunks of the economy that will come back, but there will be a lag. And so we think in that environment, people are going to have to be more thrifty. Businesses like Amazon, for example, where e-commerce and online shopping were trends already, but this has really accelerated those trends. What would have coronavirus been like 20 years ago? It would have been so much more isolating than it has been today. So I think that's been, been the upside, just seeing everyone's adaptability and ability to use technology to stay connected. Definitely up front, it was getting that separation between home and work and just working out new workflows. What took them 500 days in the GFC, they did in three weeks in this crisis. So. Yeah, liquidity and don't fight the Fed. Given that we're doing quite well here in Australia and relative to some of our, you know, the overseas markets, US, for example, really large market, how does that impact um, how you're thinking about investing, you know, that relative uh, performance of people dealing with the virus or countries dealing with the virus? Yeah, look, I think when you look at overseas, it really depends on the market and, and say the US, the headline number of cases is, is very high. And, you know, you've got very dense cities like New York, where that's, you know, it it's, um, seems obvious that that would be the case because of the density of living. And, and, and then you've got to overlay that with, with the actual deaths and, and, and the US doesn't look as bad on that metric compared to Europe. So I think, Yes, the different economies have reacted differently. They've got different numbers of ICU beds and, and hence the number of deaths is different across different geographies. But no one's been left untouched. And, and look, China obviously went in first and has come out come out first. And, and the level of government intervention in an economy um, obviously plays a role in terms of how quickly you can test people. Um, so I think that's another factor, the, the level of testing in different geographies. But really, it's for us. It's we are we look at at each geography and make a call on where they are and how they're being affected by Corona. But but even more important um, is often looking at the sector 
because within an economy, particular sectors are actually benefiting and thriving in this environment, whereas others um, are really struggling, whether that's um, you know, travel and leisure, um, heavy capital equipment, autos, trucking. So those sectors are finding it very tough, whereas you know, cloud players like Microsoft and Amazon are benefiting. Um, in the healthcare sector, there's a number of players that are really benefiting. So I think as much as looking at um, countries and deciding where you want to invest, having a sector overlay and deciding what companies still you know, look great in this environment is, is another um, interesting way to look at it. Yeah, well, let's dig into that a, a little bit further. I mean, at, at the sector level, um, where have you been spending your time and, and how have you tilted the portfolio? So in terms of like, a couple of sectors that we think will do well, you know, in the next 12 months, I'd say we think healthcare will do well. And if you look at valuations relative to the market, it, it looks pretty compelling. And, and you have to go through you know, the different segments of healthcare. Um, it's not, that's, you know, it's not just a broad sweeping statement because I'd say there's some sectors, uh, some parts of the sector like hospitals that are, you know, really trying to adjust their businesses to, yeah. to this new reality. But in, you know, med, te med tech equipment, um, in some parts of pharma, um, we think they'll do well over, over the next, you know, coming period. I also think in the technology space, there are a number of businesses that are really benefiting and, and, and will do well. Uh, again, it's going through within the sector and finding companies that you think the valuation is compelling. It's often in the moment things, you sort of talk about this, people often extrapolate the present a long yes. way into the future. Yeah. I mean, on some of those trends that emerge, we talked about um, flexible working and online retail and that sort of, that sort of stuff. Um, what's your view on how, how enduring they're going to be and, and what are some of the themes that you think are, are you know are really going to take hold yeah i think that's a good point i think some of the things we're seeing are more temporary there will be a degree of flexible workplace but we will still go back in in many cases you will still go go back to an office um and so a lot of the, the a lot of the themes will you know, ease over time and restaurant, people will eventually come back to restaurants that might be at lower levels than, than it was before. But a couple of themes that we think are, are, are more enduring, um, one is around thriftiness. We think it's inevitable we'll go into a recession coming out the other side of, um, other side of coronavirus. And, you know, if you look at a number of people that are going to be unemployed, um, you look at the industries that will have more lasting um pain. Um, it's sectors, say tourism, for example. I mean, domestic, we think, will come back quicker than international. Mass tourism is an $8.8 trillion um, you know, industry, counts for 10.4% of global GDP. Um, and so that's you know, a big chunk of GDP that's not going to bounce straight back. And the same with the restaurant industry. I think it, it employs, say, in the US, for example, one in 10 people um, so these are big numbers and big chunks um, of the economy uh, that will come back, but there will be a lag. And so we think in that environment, people are going to have to be more thrifty. They are, they are going to have to watch um, watch where they're spending their money. And and so you know we on that thematic, we've bought um, the largest um, dollar stores operators um, across the US, Europe. So that's Dollar General in the US, um, B&M Value Retail in in Europe. Uh, and then uh, in Japan, we own um, the low-cost discount supermarket retailer called Kobe Busan. Um, so we think, you know, their plays on that thematic of uh, inevitable thriftiness that that comes through from from consumers in in the in the world post-corona. And at the at the portfolio level, 
talk me through recession proofing. Like, how have you thought about doing that? Yeah. So in terms of the portfolio, uh, I'd say the characteristics of the the companies we've chosen, we've really looked at earnings resilience. We've looked we've looked for companies with really sound balance sheets, really high quality management teams, and strong market positions. Um, and and the piece that is harder in this kind of environment is working out what actually does have earnings resilience because you know when the market the economy is good and companies and countries are you know growing well you can hide a lot of ills and and you don't see the cyclicality that is that is inherent in a lot of businesses so we've you know done a lot of work analyzing businesses through prior crises and worked out, you know, and to come up with ideas, stocks that we think will do well and, and will be resilient. And and some of those sectors is things like the dollar stores where, you know, you don't have a job, so you're going to try and save money. Other areas that we think would, you know, consumer staples companies tend to do, they're very defensive. They tend to um, tend to do well in this kind of environment. And and then auto parts retail, you, if when you're cutting things, you do, you are still going to get your car repaired. You won't buy a new car, but you will get your car repaired. Home improvement tends to be quite resilient um, relative to obviously, you know, more you, buying another um, handbag, you might, you, you, uh, you fix your house. Or, and the, I think, the run on Bunnings has been well, incredible. Well, exactly. Corona, I think, uh, unfortunately, no sport on TV and, and, uh, and, and Corona has meant a lot more, uh, lot, there's a lot more you know, handiwork getting done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, not so handy. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the world, you know, your investment universe, there are some, like some truly outstanding, absolute global leaders. Yeah. A crisis like the one that we've had, um, a lot of things get marked down and, and some of those stocks that may be on the wish list become um, attainable. Did you have a wish list and were you able to pick off some of those bigger names? Because I know you tend yep. to hunt in the small cap world. Yes, yep. So absolutely we have a wish, a wish list. So inevitably when you're seeing hundreds and hundreds of companies a year, um, you'll often come across businesses that are you know, multi-year growth stories great management teams, strong dominant market positions, high returns on capital, but the piece that's missing is often valuation. Um, and, and so you have your wish list of companies that you'd love to own if there is you know, a market correction. Um, so yes, we have a wish list and, and in the sell-off in, in March, you know, there were various of the, those sort of businesses that sell, sold off you know, 20 to 40%. Um, and we were, we were able to Add a few of a few of those names, particularly in the in the in the larger end of the market, because with all the uncertainty, we did want to keep liquidity because you know inevitably you know who knows in terms of exactly how this plays out. So you want some liquidity to be able to you know raise cash if 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 you um, if things start to get significantly worse. Um, so yeah, we did add a few of those um, names. We added some Microsoft, some PayPal, um, some Visa, some Adobe. Um, so wonderful businesses hadn't necessarily ticked the box in terms of valuation. So we were able to, to add some of those um, in the downturn. A few of them we've trimmed now because they've had phenomenal, phenomenal runs. But we're also overlaying at the moment this, the uncertainty and the, there has been some new winners you know, businesses like Amazon, for example, where e-commerce and online shopping were, 
you know, trends already, but this has really accelerated those trends. So what were already winners have become even bigger winners. And it's the same for businesses like Microsoft, like the, the cloud businesses of both Amazon and Microsoft, um, you know, are just doing phenomenally well. And I don't think that's a trend that's going to slow down. Things were really tough in the first few weeks, but we've gotten better. Matt and Katrina, the large cap team and the global team have been incredibly you know, useful and helpful for us, you know, looking at stocks from the ground up in WAM Capital and WAM Microcap. So I think we'll look on this period very favourably as a, from, a, from a wider team. The beautiful part of the sell-off in March was valuations got to levels in companies that we haven't been able to buy because they don't fit our investment process. A number of companies such as, say, like a Appen, a zero, you know, we were actually able to add to the portfolio of this period. But I think the big structural change that we see, and we've seen it through very strong results, is around those companies offering services to the cloud computing industry. When things first started, there's still buyers around when stocks are down initially 10 to 15%. But when that liquidity dries up and things get really weak, which we saw in March, these stocks just fall and there's just no buying. So we acted pretty quickly for some of the less liquid companies in our portfolio and sold them early on because a number of these stocks fell 50 to 70%. And what does the smaller company's landscape look like today? It's such a varied universe and doesn't get the same coverage that big caps and, and probably even globals get. What's your assessment of the lay of the land there right now? It's been fascinating to see the small cap industrial market in terms of how it's um, performed through coronavirus. I mean, from WAM Capital, WAM Microcap, that's the vast majority of the stocks we invest in. Um, these stocks are highly volatile. They offer investors greater return, but also higher risk. So generally when we see periods of dislocation or market falling, these, will, these stocks will fall harder than say like a, a large cap company like BHP or, or Commonwealth Bank. And that, that's exactly what happened um, through March. But what's been fascinating is through the rebound is these, these companies have actually performed much stronger than large cap companies, which we think, you know, these companies have actually gone uh, too hard. We think that they're probably due for a sell-off. The reasoning behind that, I think, is because there's a high weighting of the technology sector within small cap industrials. And if you have a look at the United States, um, the technology sector has performed extremely well. Um, they've had very good results through the March reporting season. So we think this has translated into Australia. Now, as I said before, I think valuations run too hard. So we would expect large caps to do probably a little bit better over the next few months. What are some of the permanent structural changes um, that you're observing and particularly how do they relate to that to the universe that you're investing in and 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 down to some of your positioning yeah i think the most obvious change around sort of the structural changes coming out of COVID 19 the first one you've got to look at is online and in particular in retail so companies such as temple and webstar uh, kogan have done very very well over this period uh, but even some of the retailers we see quite um you know, we see value in such as like a city chic or an Adairs, which actually has quite a high proportion of their sales, over 40 to 50% um, of their sales are actually focused on in online. So these, these companies are the ones that have actually lagged some of the pure play online retailers. And we think they look quite interesting um, over the coming months. If I look at other sectors, um, you know, in the lottery space, Jumbo Interactive, which is a digital online reseller of lottery tickets, that looks interesting. Um, education, IDP education is shifting their business online as well. Um, but I think the big structural change that we see, and we've seen it through very strong results, is around those companies offering services to the cloud computing industry. I think those companies that haven't outsourced their IT infrastructure over this period has, have been impacted. And so 
I think you'll see, we've continued to see growth, but I think this will continue to accelerate. And so beneficiaries are a lot of the, the data center companies such as Next DC, Megaport, the distributors such as Data3 or Dicker Data. So yeah, that, that would be a selection of sort of the sectors we see that have positive structural changes going forward. You mentioned earlier, you talked about the strength that you've seen in the technology sector. Uh, I think the NASDAQ is, is starting to push into positive territory for a year and you've, you've talked about um, that part of the small and mid-cap universe having a, a good run here. It was a notable um, comment from your roadshow presentation at the end of last year. You felt like that that was not an area that you wanted to participate in. It was expensive. You thought it was overvaluation, overvalued. Have you been forced to revisit that or has the quality of those companies as they've performed during this period sort of drawn you back to that sector? I think that the beautiful part of the sell-off in March was valuations got to levels in companies that we haven't been able to buy because they don't fit our investment process um, in that space. And so a number of companies such as, say, like a Appen, a Zero, um, you know, we were actually able to add to or add to the portfolio of this period. And I think the resilience of those companies have really surprised me through this period. I mean, you will get a, a you won't get a greater test than how recurring and sticky these 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 companies and their and their clients will be through a period such as as COVID nineteen. And if I look through some of the companies in that sector, say like a Technology One, an Objective Corp, um, an Infomedia, um, they've really held up well, and they're actually hitting their numbers that they said they would do. Um, before the crisis actually started. So I think, you know, in this space, you've got to be selective. Not all, you know, there's some pretenders in this space, and I think I've said this before, um, not all companies are going to mirror Apple or Google or Facebook globally. You've got to be careful around that. But there are some some true companies deserve premium valuations because they are truly um, recurring businesses and have sticky uh, sticky customers. And those are the ones that we've been focused on and, um the benefit of, of the sell-off in March was that we could actually buy them and they still sit in the portfolio today. Talk us through your thesis on ag and maybe before you get into the specific thesis, how do you think about investing in a sector that is so cyclical? With ag and we've owned elders and grain court for some time and I, we made a call sort of this time around last year where we looked at consensus earnings numbers for both the companies and we said, well, you know, is this pricing in a recovery back to an average season? And we, they weren't. So I think at the time, sort of, I'll give you an example, say Elders, they made a series of acquisitions, particularly air acquisition back in, uh, in July. And if you look, if you assumed an average season, there was effectively like 15 to 20% upside in terms of earnings from what that we saw for the forecast from analysts. So we held a, held a small position in both the companies. Um, and then I think as soon as the rain hit straight after the fires, we really increased our holdings in, in, in both of those companies. So if I look at Elders, um, you know, fabulous management team, business was on its, on, on the rocks just over five years ago. I've done a fantastic job. It's now reverted to growth, opportunity for them to consolidate the market, given the number one and number three players have, have effectively merged. Um, so we quite like that one. It's still on a cheap valuation. Grain Corp, uh, largest logistics. Um, provider for the grain industry on the eastern seaboard uh, post the sale the divestment of the malt business um, the business has a much better balance sheet and we think a lot of the efficiency savings that they've talked about will now come out in the next couple of years with it with it with a decent crop so we like those two um, it's a hard space to invest in uh, because you know it's very dependent on the weather 
Um, but I think the common theme across the ag sector is, is that they most of the company, or well, a vast majority of the companies have very strong balance sheets. So that gives you that added protection um, if things get worse. What about the next level up? Um, I think about what's happened um, uh, over the past few months, and I, and I think Australian um, products, particularly in, in food, um, are going to continue to command a, a premium and are going to be a well sought after. Examples that spring to mind are you like your A2 milks and, and those sorts of things. Do you look at playing it at that next level up? I mean, there's things like Freedom Foods and Bega, um, A2, um, some of the, the formula producers. Have you thought about extending that, that idea to the next level up? Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, A2 Milk's been one of our larger positions or large, probably the largest position in the portfolio for at least in the last six months. Um, I mean, fabulous company. Management's done a fantastic job. I think you see the benefit of how they've marketed the product in China through this period and how popular the product is and it's effectively an essential product. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, definitely, I think, you know, products and food security and so forth, particularly through this COVID-19 um, pandemic is, 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 is incredibly important. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a theme where we're playing in through the portfolio. Those comments from Oscar wrap up the insights from the investment team. To conclude the podcast, there's a final message to shareholders from Kate Thorley. And remember, visit wilsonassetmanagement.com.au forward slash vault, that's V-A-U-L-T, where you can watch, read or listen to each of the extended conversations. Oh, look, I just hope that they're all well and, and safe at this time. I guess let them know that the investment team are working really hard, you know, managing their money and their capital and, and that we'll miss them. We'll miss them in May uh, of this month, sorry, and hopefully that we'll see them in November in person because, yeah, in, in terms of a sense of community, let, let's hope we're, we're able to see them again soon.